Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Now you may have noticed that this is a bit of a bumper episode. Why so long today? Well, today we are talking to the authors behind the recent Heredity paper, Demographic Inferences After a Range Expansion Can Be Biased, the test case of the Black Tip Reef Shark. This paper has not one, not two, not three, but four equal first authors, and we are hearing from all of them. So let's not waste any time and get right into it. Hi, my name is Shannon Corrigan. I'm a postdoc at the Florida Museum of Natural History. I'm an evolutionary biologist. Um, I'm interested in studying biodiversity and diversification processes, and I primarily focus on studying sharks and rays. My name is Gavin Naylor. I'm an evolutionary biologist at the Florida Museum of Natural History. I study evolutionary phylogenetics primarily and have recently been doing a little bit more population genetic work. Hi, my name is Pierpaolo Maisano-Dalsa. I'm a postdoc actually at the University of Cambridge shared in, uh, with Trinity College in Dublin. I'm a population geneticist and I basically try to reconstruct the history of population in the past using modern and ancient genetic data. Uh, so I'm Stefano Mona. I'm working in Paris at the Museum of Natural History and I am a population geneticist uh, like Pierre and I'm working with many, many species. Great. Well, thank you all for joining. This is probably the largest podcast that I think the Heredity Podcast is ever going to try doing. And the reason you're all here is that you're all the joint first authors on the recent paper, Demographic Inferences After a Range Expansion Can Be Biased, the test case of the black tip reef shark. Could one of you just explain the motivation behind this study and what it was you were aiming to investigate in it? Sure. Who's going to go? Gavin? <laughs> oh, sure. I can talk about the motivation. So uh, we have long studied the diversity of different species of sharks but uh, we hadn't really explored the diversification within a species. And in the few instances where we had looked at diversification within sharks, they seemed to be genetically fairly homogeneous. That is not the case with uh, Cochrinus melanopterus, the uh, reef blacktip shark. In that particular instance, we saw that sharks that were derived from different island systems seemed to be genetically distinct. And therefore, we thought that this would be a fairly good study species to evaluate patterns of genetic variation in the context of a range expansion. We realize that these animals don't move very much, but when they do move, they sort of sprint across from one island to the next and then populate that particular island and then subsequently move from one to another. So their biology predisposed them perhaps to leave a trace in genetic variation that we could recover. And uh, Pierre and Stefano, had actually got some funding to explore these organisms and they contacted us, Shannon and myself, and we had recently at that time developed some new gene capture methods that allowed us to target protein coding genes in a way that we thought would be particularly useful for this kind of work. So it was a very synergistic collaboration. We had the technical tools to be able to collect data that we thought would be useful and Pierre and Stefano had the analytical skills to be able to explore different patterns that we might encounter in the data. Perfect. Um, maybe one of you could just tell us a little bit about the black tip reef shark in general. Ah, right, sure. These are animals that are kept in aquaria all over the world. So they're beautiful. They've got jet black fin tips and they're strikingly marked and they're ubiquitous all over the South Pacific and Indian Ocean. So they sort of lend themselves to sampling and we have very little evidence of them making long-range movements from one island to the next. The other thing that's really important to note about sharks in general is that their population genetics are more like mammals than most fishes. They don't have many offspring. They're strongly case-selected. They live a long time. And so the patterns of transmission genetically from one generation to the next 
are far more tractable than would be the case for, say, spawning bony fishes. Oh, fantastic. So what might be interesting is if we kind of went around each of you and if you could just explain what it was that you were doing in the study and how what you were doing was kind of complementing and complemented by what each other were doing. So it kind of came about because Gavin and I have as our primary focus is to study sharks and rays. And so we'd been developing some new genomic tools specifically for studying those organisms um, over the last few years. And so we had developed a target gene capture um, approach primarily for the purposes of looking at uh, molecular phylogenetics and sort of higher level phylogeny work. And then we also determined that that method would be useful for also collecting population level data. And then we were approached by a peer and Stefano to apply that technique to studying the black tip reef shark because we wanted to do some comparisons with some previous work that had been based on microsatellite data and more traditional population genetics approaches. So my role in the project was to actually do the lab work um, and send it away for sequencing and then we uh, were able to process it and um, call some high quality SNPs, which I then handed off to Pierre and Stefano. So you were able to get this really interesting genetic data set. You handed it over. And then what was it you were finding when you started looking at this data? So as Gavin was saying earlier, we were um, mostly interested in using the black tip reef shark as a test case for a species that we thought was probably very highly structured and, and probably also likely to exhibit metapopulation structure. And so we wanted to use that species for look investigating some of the more theoretical questions that we had that I think Pierre and Stefano will get into. But for us, obviously, once we started looking at population structure and actually testing different models of population structure, we saw a beautiful case of metapopulation structure in this species. So it was kind of nice to see that the data showed exactly what we were expecting to see based on what we know about the biology and what we thought we know about the evolutionary history of the organism. Shall I keep going from there? So basically, when I started working on this project, I didn't know much about the black tip reef shark, to be fair. And when I received the data set from Shannon and Gavin, I started just exploring the data with the classical approaches. And what we found was like lots of differentiation. And previous works found this kind of strong reduction in effective population size. But these pieces, it's not threatened, it's not like at risk. So we were actually wondering what's going on. And in classical population genetics, models and approaches are always considering few populations, quite often fully isolated. And uh, Stefano has been working on more complex models, taking into account multiple populations altogether, like a more complex system called metapopulation. And when I joined his group, I kind of uh, uh, got intrigued and started like, working with him in order to fine-tune this model a bit more um, in details and try to actually fit this more complex system in which uh, we can assess and measure what we call it the connectivity, so how, uh, how much these species or these individuals are moving within the system. And Stefano possibly will describe this system a bit more in details because he's like the, the mind, I would say, almost behind it. But it was very interesting. What we discovered is that uh, we found that, to be fair, there wasn't such a strong reduction in effective population size. So this species is healthy. But what was producing this pattern was this high level of structure. And we were able to identify even different regions with different level of connectivity. And this actually matches really nicely with uh, even the ecology and the distribution of the coral reef which is the environment that a black tip reef shark is associated to. Stefano, do you want to mention the, the origin of the range expansion? Yeah, I was going to touch on that a little bit as well. I think it's kind of neat. Or the, yeah, and the fact that we've recently seen that they're perhaps still expanding with them showing up in Costa Rica. You can go ahead, Stefano. 
Ah, okay, sorry. <laughs> what is important is that we try to find out the geographic origin of the range expansion. So this is important in the context of the Indo-Pacific, because of course there are many, many theories about the biogeography and how the species diversity emerged. And so uh, there are many different biogeographic theories to explain that. But actually there are not so many population genetic tests about how the, these different hypotheses. So somehow the history of the Melanopterus uh, is one first test showing how using population genetics we could discriminate between these hypotheses and so try to explain why there is more biodiversity in some areas rather than others and what are ultimately the, the, the mechanism that gave origin to this diversity. So I think that quite interesting because it's some methods that we could apply to any other species, provided that we have enough uh, genetic data, because of course they, they demand a lot of um, inferential power. And I mean, I guess you mentioned also that they're still expanding? Oh, yeah. So um, I guess the nice thing about this, as Stefano was saying, there's you know, a number of different hypotheses about why the coral triangle or the Indo-Pacific is a center of diversity. So the two competing ones are whether or not that means it's a center of origin of diversity or an area of overlap. So we were able to show again statistically that it seems like that in this case, the center of origin for um, black tip reef sharks is the coral triangle. Um, and then they've expanded their range in two different waves, eastward and westward. So down through Australia and then out into the Indo-Pacific Islands, and then also westward towards South Africa and the Red Sea. Um, the Indo-Pacific Islands, um, Maria, what's the island chain called? Polynesia, <laughs> blanking out. <laughs> Polynesia. Um, it's sort of where we see them in high numbers at the moment, but there's also been anecdotal evidence recently that they're starting to show up as far as Costa Rica. So it seems like they're probably an example of a species that is still undergoing a range expansion. No, oh, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it is really interesting in your paper how you are, and you've kind of mentioned it already, this sort of very uh, structured metapopulation that you're finding. And one thing that's kind of interesting is that you kind of talk a bit in your paper about the fact that this might mimic population bottlenecks. So I guess I kind of wonder maybe what kind of lessons you think there are for when we're looking at the population genetics of species that might have this kind of structure. So basically, yes, this high level of population structure can mimic a strong reduction, so a strong bottleneck when we are using classical population genetics model. So when we are considering only one or a few populations isolated or with like just a bit of migration, that can result in a strong reduction of uh, effective population size, which can make people think, okay, possibly this species is suffering. I mean, uh, something's going on. But actually, just because the connectivity, so they were not moving much, this uh, typical intrinsic pattern of these species was producing high level of differentiation. And that actually can resemble a strong bottleneck if we were using like classical population genetic models. But when we incorporated like more complex model to capture the whole system, we were able to show that actually that's down only to the low level of connectivity that the black tip reef shark is showing. And uh, the, the lesson that I also personally learned is always to be careful in which way we're going to analyze the data because sometimes population structure can really like mess up our mind, you know what I mean? So it can give us like really uh, different results or actually can lead us to misinterpret the results. Especially the pattern that we are looking, the pattern is correct, but the interpretation can be completely misleading. Stefano, do you have anything you want to add to that? Just what I want to say is actually that the reason why this paper, I think, is very interesting. Well, of course, I say it because it's our paper. <laughs> but 
but the problem is that the theory existed already. I mean, all the paper, I, I have to mention all the paper from John Wakeley, the group of Lunas Chiki, and all these people that have been working on these kind of problems in metapopulation. But the fact that there was kind of a separation between what theory is telling us and application to the real data. So I thought at the beginning that melanotropes was really a, a super nice test because we had a lot of ecological evidences and also previous uh, genetic paper. For example, for example, the paper from uh, Thomas Vigneault, who, who said that we could expect structure, a lot of structure in this, uh, in this animal. So the idea was, okay, this can be really a nice case to make a, lien, a link between theory and uh, empirical data. So in the studies, real data. And that's why I think it was very, this is somehow very important because it really shows that uh, the theory, is, of course, it's right. And it really tells that when we analyze real data, we need to take it into account. And the message is not at all not to use, for example, unstructured models on our data. The message is that we should interpret them differently. I think for me as an empirical biologist, it was important also to be able to statistically test different models. Exactly. So I think sometimes we kind of, you know, stick to a more descriptive approach to population genetics. And so you just describe the patterns and then you kind of like invoke these explanations based on the patterns that you see. So the nice thing for me in getting to work with Pierre and Stefano on this was actually being able to start to test different models statistically and actually statistically test for a range expansion and then be able to base all of our biological interpretations sort of less on hand wavy <laughs> things that we think might have happened and actually testing these different scenarios. So that was um, a good takeaway for me that we are offering an option for people that's computationally tractable. Yeah, no, for sure. I have been on the other end of that trying to interpret population genetic data but having to do it fairly qualitatively and it's not very satisfying so it is really nice to see all of the stats in this paper and the way that you really have quantified it but i mean you've kind of all mentioned some really interesting results with the structure you've kind of mentioned that it's a very sort of quantitative approach that it has some quite broad appeal uh, or broad applications in a lot of different fields so i guess i kind of wonder what you all might think is the most important take home from this study so from my perspective, I hope that shark biologists become particularly interested in applying population genetic approaches to sharks, but I hope that the mammal biologists and bird biologists and sort of choose your favorite organism biologists actually can glean some theoretical concerns that, if not addressed, can lead them to have false conclusions. I think currently there's a lot of concern about species becoming imperiled and endangered, and the biologists have a little cottage industry of collecting molecular data and saying the effective population size of this one is critically endangered, we've got to save them. And I really do think that scientists need to be really disciplined and honest about interpreting the data uh, in the most rigorous way. If we start generating these knee-jerk kind of statements that, you know, X species is endangered and it turns out that we've misinterpreted the data, people are not going to take us very seriously. So I think that's the, the take-home message that I would like to be transmitted. Uh, of course, I'm 100% uh, in agreement with Gavin. And I just want to add that something that maybe we didn't highlight too much in the paper, which is very, very important in general, actually, is the fact that we, we tried to make a link between the ecology and the genetics uh, in an um, extensive way. For example, one of the results which is more important is that you find a strong correlation between the distribution of the habitat of the sharks and its genetic pattern. And this is something that sometimes overlooked uh, in, 
in my sense, uh, in the literature. So sometimes ecology and genetics do not talk too much uh, one to each other. And I think that is really a very important point that should be highlighted. And that really, uh, I hope that this paper somehow could prompt a more collaboration between ecologists, geneticists, and everybody to, to uncover these kind of questions. Yeah, if I can add something about that as well. Now we are living actually in a time in which we have the great privilege to being able to generate like this massive genetic data set. So sometimes actually recently uh, the field has been pushed more actually to data generation than data analysis. And as Stefano said previously, these models, these complex metapopulation models were theoretically developed like years ago. But sometimes we didn't have the right data set and the right, so the right power actually to test them. And actually now, we have the privilege that we are able to link empirical data with theoretical model and try actually to explore the system much more into details. And the system doesn't refer only to sharks, can refer to different organisms, as Kevin mentioned it as well. So we should possibly put more efforts in trying to actually explore the system from different points of view, trying to fit different models and use different approaching to capture actually uh, several uh, different information and actually get a better interpretation of the old species. I agree with that. Perfect. Yeah, I know some in incredibly interesting points. Um, and I guess, so I only have one final question, and it's more to do with how the study was conducted. So, I mean, one thing that's really interesting from my perspective is that you're all in different places. You didn't necessarily know each other before you started this collaboration. So I wonder how the experience was of working on this project together and what you think the benefit of having such a diverse group is. From my perspective, I think it was really useful to work with people like Pierre and Stefano, who are clearly so much more accomplished with theoretical population genetics than we are, that we basically blindly trust them. And <laughs> <laughs> whatever they come up with, we try to interpret it. And I think that uh, Stefano and Pierre uh, would ask us questions about the biology, and uh, um, they, they trusted us too, that we, we weren't making things up. But we had enough overlap in our respective domains that we could communicate in an effective way. I think that, for me, was a really nice balance between partition of labor and skill sets and intersection where we all have the same vocabulary and we know the same conceptual underpinnings and therefore we're able to work together. You want to add to that, Stefano? Well, first of all, I want to say that it was really great because it was funny. So we are really at yeah. fun. I think this is important <laughs> when you do a collaboration because sometimes it's not uh, that uh, straightforward. And of course, what helped as well, uh, it was the fact that we are really, really complementary. So we were more on the theoretical population genetic side. They were more into production of the data and of course of the ecology of the sharks and the, on the Pacific. So we learned a lot, me and Pierre. So it was really enriching. And of course, I cannot... Uh, Top to mention the fact that also from a human point of view, it was very interesting. And it's important, even if it's not about science, but still. Yeah, we had a lot of fun too. It was great. And Pierre and Stefano came to visit us in Charleston and we took them to see some alligators. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, um, I think that's great. And I oddly actually think you can kind of tell it in the paper that you had a lot of fun and it was really complimentary because it's... It's really well-rounded, it's really interesting. So I think it kind of shines through that you guys were clearly really loving doing this project. No, we definitely did. And to be fair, I completely agree with Gavin and Stefano. I mean, I think this work, beside the science, is one of the nice examples of how actually fun, interesting, and 
productful is la, um, an interdisciplinary approach. And to be fair, I remember lots of Skype calls or even when we met them in Charleston, when Stefan and I were arriving with very strange results from our models that we tested thousand times. They look reliable and robust, but we couldn't interpret. And Gavin or Shannon, they were saying, oh, obviously, because that's the reason. And we're like, oh, that's great. You know what I mean? <laughs> Everything <laughs> makes sense now. Yeah. So... That one was actually, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful moments of this work as well in terms of like working together. Yeah. And yeah, all I have to do is reiterate all of those sentiments. It was a very nice collaboration. And and an example of the way that things are going to have to increasingly go as we start to get these ever larger data sets. Yeah, for sure. And I think your study shows just how good those collaborations can be and just how important they are. Thanks to our quartet of lead authors there. Please do go and read the paper that they and their collaborators produced. Demographic inferences after a range expansion can be biased. The test case of the black tip reef shark. It has a lot of really important lessons in it for quantitative population genetic studies. And more than that, it's a prime example of the great kind of work that can be produced with a respectful and supportive collaboration. And talking about collaboration, I wonder what Dr. Kat Arney is up to over in Genetics Unzipped. In the latest Genetics Unzipped podcast, we're venturing into the dark heart of the genome, searching for the secrets lurking within centromeres and hunting for the fountain of eternal youth tied up by nature's shoelaces. Plus, we look back at the discovery of RNA splicing and ask whether Nobel Prizes are really the fairest way of recognising scientific achievements. Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Another fantastic sounding episode. Make sure you go and check it out. But that's us for this episode. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetics Society. You can find out more about Heredity and read the paper featured today on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash hdy. If you want to keep up to date with the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. And if you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Tune in next time.